Hey everybody, welcome back to Rising from the ashes. <laughs> I'm Danu Naki Dan. I'm the Hummy Hummy. You're the who? <laughs> Yo, what's happening? It is your favorite uh, Lucky Charm Martian, the homie Romy. <laughs> All right. Today on episode two, we're going to be talking to Sergio again, and we're going to yes. be going over the Garden of Eden and Sumerian. Uh, we talk a little bit about mushrooms, uh, pine pollen, Gilgamesh, awareness through sex. And we end it with the Great Flood. So stick around for that interview. But right now, let's get into some RFTA news. news. So what's up, Romy Romy? What plant plant. medicine do you have for us today? One of my faves, bud. One of my faves. Um, This plant is sweet. Um, It's not salty. It's called St. John's Wort. And um, it's called St. John's Ward because uh, the fact that it flowers at the time of the summer solstice on or around St. John's Day on 24th of June, having been administered as a remedy by the Roman military doctor Proscurides as early as the first century A.D., It was mainly used for magic potions during the Middle Ages. It was not only used to protect humans and animals against witches, demons, and evil diseases, but it was also added to the fire when molding Frikuljul. What's Frikuljul? Hmm. Let me just tell you what that is. Kidding. I have no idea what that is. There's literally no way to know what Frikuljul (laughs) is. So, (laughs) but, uh, sounds like a sweet magical potion. Um, and there was an early on doctor that concerns themselves with St. John's wort. However, where it had been formally used as for a plethora of indications, in more recent times, it's found a place in the treatment of depression and anti-anxiety. It's an SSRI, so it is also used like antidepressants, and it's very potent. I don't know if anybody's supplemented with St. John's wort. I use the Herb Farm tincture. Um, or I harvest it when it's in season and it is very noticeable. Like your serotonin levels up, like skyrocket. And um, if you're consistent with it, like you want to take the tincture daily or tea is really good. If you can get nice flour um, at your local herb shop and make a tea with it uh, every day, you will notice improvements in just like overall happiness. Like St. John's wort is a happy flower. It basically regulates your serotonin levels in your body. So, you know, unlike other things where they can deplete your serotonin, uh, you know, pull a bunch out and create some, this actually keeps it regenerative. You know, it's an esoteric herb in the sense that Western medicinal or Western pharmaceuticals, you know, called it rubbish after they, you know, switched to petroleum-based uh, drugs. But before that, St. John's wort was the the one of the number one antidepressants. Like it, it, it works. It's awesome. I love it. 
it's got beautiful little yellow flowers and it's associated with the summer. So, and it helps you against evil spirits and outside influences. So I'm with it, my man. You feel me? Awesome, man. St. John's Welt. St. St. John's Wort. Go to your local herb shop, <laughs> get it, put it in a cup, hit it with hot water, drink it, love it, do it. I'm friggin' telling you guys. And if you mix it with pine pollen and marshmallow, you guys see what I'm doing here? We're building tea blends, baby. By the end of this time that we're doing this entire show, y'all are going to be able to mix herbs together and have some crazy potions, man. Alchemy, dog. Let's go. Excellent, man. That's fantastic. I'm with it. I'm with it. I know quite so a few people a- that have said that they have gone and gotten some pine pollen. Uh, Ooh, so yes, that reminds me. Also, I wanted you, to give friend. a shout out to my. I want to give a shout out to my boy Joey, um, who uh, said he's been taking pine pollen for years, but he just switched to Scots pine. And he says that it's awesome. And also Joey's awesome. And I wanted to shout out him because he's brother and much love. And thanks for listening, bro. All right. So I got another article here from Ancient Origins, which is my favorite website for information. They're they're awesome. Yeah, they're awesome. Uh, This article is dated April 19th, 2021. So a few days ago. When is that? Three days ago? A few days ago, man. It's by Ashley... Cowie, and the title of it is Highly Unusual Ancient Tomb Discovered by Farmer in Ireland. An Irish farmer has discovered a highly unusual and untouched ancient tomb in Country Kerry during land improvement works, which could date back 4,000 years or earlier. The well-preserved stone tomb was unearthed on the Dingle Peninsula, located in Ireland's south west atlantic coast according to the dingle peninsula tours website the region is commonly called corca de hubni which means seed or tribe of de hubni a celtic goddess of the twath people who once occupied the peninsula the ancient tomb was recently discovered on private land by a digger during the land reclamation works being carried out by a farmer. However, the National Monument Service has requested that the exact location of the ancient burial structure should remain secret to prevent the possibility of disturbance. The tomb is in a vulnerable condition, and there are concerns that people visiting the site might cause further damage. Remember, diamonds come in small boxes. No other landscape in Western Europe boasts the sheer density and variety of archaeological sites, as does the Dingle Peninsula. This last stop before the Atlantic Ocean has supported people for at least 6,000 years, and it is estimated that the landscape holds over 2,000 ancient monuments. Excavations at Ferreter's Cove from first hunters and gatherers date back to the Mesolithic period, between 800,000 and 400,000 BC, and cow bones dating back to 5,700 years before present are the earliest evidence for cattle in Ireland. The Bronze Age saw the emergence of the first farmers on the Dingle Peninsula who lived in more permanent structures and developed pottery and other craft skills. 
Large stone tombs were built in the region to house the dead, and many demonstrate incredible architectural skill in their orientation and alignment to the setting sun during the winter solstice. While this newly discovered tomb is relatively small in size, it is no less valuable in archaeological terms. Uh, the next section is called A Highly Significant Ancient Discovery. The tomb was uncovered when a farmer upturned a large stone beneath which a stone slab lined chamber was discovered with an adjoining subchamber located in front of the main tomb. Archaeologists from the National Monument Service and the National Museum of Ireland visited the site to carry out an initial survey, and within the sacred space, they discovered an unusual smooth oval-shaped stone and what is believed to be human bone, according to a report in RTE. It is believed the tomb may date to the Bronze Age, 2000 BC to 500 BC, but the archaeologists have identified a number of highly unusual features which suggest it could have been built much earlier. Archaeologist Michael O. Coilian said the design of this particular tomb is not like any of the other Bronze Age burial sites we have here. The oval-shaped stone, which is most probably a ritual item, has been removed for safekeeping and the authorities say will not be commenting on the find until a full survey has been completed. But they did say it was highly unusual and a significant find. Uh, a tomb aligned with the gods. Dr. Brendan O. Siobhain is an archaeologist and place names expert. Speaking with RTE, the expert said the find could be invaluable to our understanding of prehistoric burial rituals. The tomb's almost perfect state of preservation is very rare and an extremely significant find. Furthermore, the professor said that the orientation of the ancient tomb could help significantly in determining its age. Dr. O. Seal Behain said the majority of wedge tombs discovered in Cork and Kerry in particular are generally oriented to the west and southwest. The researcher says it's not currently clear why, but many tombs have unusual features such as porticos at the western end, so the orientation perhaps represents important celestial or lunar alignments. So the reason why I wanted to read this article was because at the very beginning, it connects to the Tuata de Danan, uh, when it calls it the Corca Duhibni, which means the seed of Duhibni. And that is spelled D-H-U-I-B-H-N-E. I'm probably not saying it right, so don't get mad at me. I don't speak whatever this language is, Irish. Don't get mad at him. Uh, some, yeah. So, and don't. then they, yeah. So it's referring <laughs> to the tribe of Dan, which we talked about in episode three. So if you haven't listened to episode three of the Genesis, it's about halfway through. Go, go check out the tribe of Dan uh, in there. And also we will be getting into more tribe of Dan and Danunaki theory stuff real soon. So stay tuned for that also. And what else you got for us today, homie? Well, we're going to talk about 
um, mushrooms and uh, some different types of mycelium. So we're, we were just trying to kind of rack our brains on, you know, what point humans like discovered psilocybe mushrooms and, and how they did. Right. And if you like, go online and there's a bunch of hibbity and a bunch of jibbity and a bunch of swibbity, but I read between the lines, my good man. And <laughs> anyways, yeah, we're going to talk about mushrooms. So um, there are multiple accounts of mushrooms, non-psychedelic mushrooms being preserved in amber and fossilized. So you have fossilized mushrooms that I've found that are 125 million years old. And then you have... Holy shit. Yes. Yeah. Preserved mushroom that was found, um, it got caught in a river and perfectly fossilized and supposedly is 125 million years old. Yeah. There was, uh, some well-preserved mushrooms that were trapped in amber some 99 million years ago. Uh, and they are now in a museum collection in China. Um, also these, these beetles, they had like uh, over a hundred pieces of amber that preserved all of these special things like it it preserved beetles it preserved mushrooms other fragments there was like some bugs and yeah like they found a bunch of this stuff so what i'm getting at here is i i think that as long as humans were eating mushrooms or discovered that they could eat any type of mushroom because here's the deal Foraging mushrooms can be incredibly dangerous, right? Like, you know, plant identification and plants that could kill you, definitely a thing. Poisonous plants out there, 100%. Mushrooms on the other end, bro, are a little bit more extreme as these sicknesses can be really bad. So the ways that you have to kind of go around foraging for things and trying them out, you know, um, I, I think techniques always were, you know, boiling and cooking things if you boil it and cook it you generally won't get sick from it you know maybe that that was that was the way they did it and that's how you have to actually process amanita mushrooms the classic um you know red and white capped mario mushrooms that you see um if you eat those raw you will get violently ill but if you boil it and process it you can eat it and have a um altering experience if you will and there is evidence to suggest that psychoactive mushrooms have been used by humans in religious ceremonies for thousands of years. A 6,000-year-old pictograph discovered near the Spanish town of Villo del Humo uh, illustrates several mushrooms that have been tentatively identified as psilocybin and hallucinogenic species native to that area. So they made um, mushroom stones like art with a very like that you can tell are the psychedelic mushrooms that are native to that area like they're not another type of mushroom they are in fact a psilocybe one and that's six thousand year old pictograph for those that aren't familiar with what a pictograph is so like it's yeah it's like kind of similar to cuneiform but like it's drawings and art so it's basically just ancient art right or a way cave paintings cave paintings cave paintings so yeah bunch of mushrooms they got high and they started painting them they're like whoa we got to remember what this looks like because we just ate them all too fast paint it 
from memory, mushrooms, they're old, they're very old. I think they're from the dawning of human civilization. You probably have psilocybin mushrooms being right there, right there along with humans. Like, I don't think there, there may have been, I mean, how long could it have been that humans didn't find it? There's plethoric all over the world. Psilocybin mushrooms grow in different shapes and sizes and, and forms um, and strains. There's, there's just so many different strains. Mycelium is such an amazingly strong substance that it's kind of like a fascia in the human body. It's, it's actually been described that fascia is like a my, mycelial mat, like web underneath your skin. So mycelium is like the fascia that holds the muscle of the earth together. And you know, the cohesion between everything that lives within the soil and makes the earth grow. The earth is a living living being like the earth grows it 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 drinks water it it needs the sun it it needs all the atmospheric things that we need right uh and and so the the things that are happening within are very much so alive and very active there's really good uh movie called mycelial running with paul stamets uh i really highly recommend anyone who's a little mushroom nerd go watch that movie probably already have uh, or you haven't, why would I, why would I assume Dan? Why am I over here assuming brother? Gosh, darn, gosh, darn assuming. Oh no, man. I thought you were going to read the history of the mushroom from Wikipedia, dude. <laughs> um, I did read a little bit of that. Um, I read the paragraph. Oh, you want me to read more? I gladly will. Read that whole here. early history part and modern history. It's five oh, I, minutes, I went dude. To... Was none of that? Oh, that wasn't good content for you? Nothing no. I do is good enough for you. I know. <laughs> he says, I know. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, okay. Here we go. Ready? Archaeological artifacts from Mexico, as well as the so-called Mayan mushroom stones of Guatemala have been interpreted by some scholars as evidence for ritual and ceremonial use of psychoactive mushrooms. The Mayan and Aztec cultures of Mesoamerica in Nahatul, uh, the language of the Aztecs and the mushrooms were called Tiananmen or God's flesh. Following the arrival of the conquistadors to the new world, following the arrival of the Spanish explorers to the new world into the 16th century, Chroniclers reported the use of mushrooms by the natives for ceremonial and religious purposes. According to the Dominican friar Diego Duran, the history of the Indies of New Spain. Mushrooms were eaten in festivities conducted by on the occasion of the ascension to the throne of Aztec Emperor Moctezuma II in 1502. The Franciscan friar Bernardo de Sagahun, Sahagun wrote witnessing mushroom usage in his Florentine Codex hmm. and described how some merchants would celebrate upon returning from a successful business trip by consuming mushrooms to invoke relevatory visions. And after the defeat of the Aztecs, the Spanish forbade traditional religious practices and rituals that they considered pagan idolatry. 
including ceremonial mushroom use, for the next four centuries, the Indians of Mesoamerica hid their use of ethiogens from the Spanish authorities. Mostly, I just wanted to get the description of the fact that they used to use mushrooms in ancient ceremonies, and they used it to trip out. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think it was common amongst pretty much all people all over the world. That's what I was saying. I don't think there's a culture that exists that hasn't partaken upon psilocybin mushrooms, not to party, but, you know, humans used to be more connected and there was more rituals done in general. And, and, you know, from the Vikings to the Spanish to, and there's remarks of it in in ancient India as well. Uh, Africa has their own, uh, the varieties of psilocybin mushroom. Like I think all cultures have, mushroom in their history at some point within their enlightening periods you know and and because it induces creativity yeah man it's a sacred rite of passage also i i agree i agree all right so that was rfta news but before i finish before we finish i have one more little thing to add because in these episodes we talk about the Anunnaki, Enlil, and Enki. And maybe some people don't know who they are. And I think one thing that's relative that we didn't really get to talk about in the both of these episodes is who Enlil and Enki were. So I read a lot of the Zachariah Sitchin books. So in there, so this is all coming from there. I don't know how close it is to Danakin or from just Mesoamerican myths. Uh, but or miss from Mesopotamia, but the pecking order is an interesting thing because what you have is you have the god Anu who has a son named Enki, and Enki comes down to earth and he kind of terraforms earth and makes it habitable, and he's here with some other gods and they're mining gold in Africa to take up to their planet to, you know, they need the gold so they can shoot it into their atmosphere to create like a atmospheric barrier from the sun uh, because their world is depleting. Uh, Enki happens to be a son, but not from a half sister of Anu. Then Anu has a new son from a half-sister, and his name is Enlil. So technically, Enlil has the right to be king of Earth because he sends Enlil down to Earth to take over. And this is where you get the big feud between the two different gods because Enki had already been here doing all the work and all the hustle. And then Enlil comes down and wants to claim everything for himself because he is the rightful heir and Enki is not. So this is kind of when the animosity starts and the war of the gods starts to happen and in the Sumerian text. So I just wanted to give a little bit of intro into that because you know it talks about and we talk about Enki being the Satan and Enlil being the 
the Lord or the God. And so I just wanted to show how this came about and the animosity between the two and, and the deception of making Enki seem like he's evil, even though he's the creator of humankind and he's the one that also gave us knowledge yet all the glory is given to Enlil. So I just wanted to preface that for this next episode. You feel me? I feel you. Yeah. All that, all that stuff really, really helps tie it all together. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah, man. I, I, I can't wait to go deeper down, uh, more Anunnaki stuff too. Like it was really, really fun. Uh, getting Sergio's side of it and, and hearing your side. And um, I, I, I would love to try to get Matthew LaCroix on. Like he's very well versed in it too. And have him come on and chat. Yeah, man. Can. I would love to talk to some different it's people about Anunnaki because there's different perspectives to everybody about it. Uh, I love Sergio's perspective though. And we get very deep uh, with Anunnaki. You know, yes, the concepts Very. that we talk about in this next episode, I haven't heard anybody else really talk about. Uh, we we use kind of Anunnaki as a basis for the show, but we get into some pretty deep other aspects of it, um, with especially with creation of mankind and stuff like that. Uh, so get ready because it's coming. It's coming at you like a sweet waterfall. Yep. Bye bye. Bye. everybody welcome back to rising from the ashes we're back here again with sergio and we're gonna get into the second part of our sumerian discussion here and we're gonna start off with the garden of eden so sergio what can you tell us about the garden of eden from a sumerian standpoint well the garden of eden was also known as the garden of the gods in uh, in Sumeria, and um, it basically is a very the, the 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 highest representation of what a perfect place is, and the debates over whether it actually exists on Earth, like whether it is somewhere in Turkey or somewhere around Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, and stuff like that. There's still no there's no concrete evidence to where it lands and there's different people talking about it uh, about where it could be which is also a kind of like a weird topic not to pursue with everything that we have with all our power right like it's it's after all the garden of eden and if there is one chance of it being real why aren't we going after it so yeah basically so it's this place where the the anunnaki were 
And it's the place where mankind was created to, to be. It's originally the idea was that they would create man in order to work in the Garden of Eden. So even it's, 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 uh, this is from an Anunnaki and from a biblical uh, background that man was created, it says, to till the garden. And as far as the, the mythology goes, is that we as early humans were there working without any kind of, think of it as, well, it looks so beautiful and the gods were there and they would walk in it and everything. But to mankind, it was sort of like a farm that they're not aware they're in. It's like, it's like cows and sheep and horses and everything. They're just there to, to till the land, to work, to help these Anunnaki gods to do that, their job, basically. Wild animals. And within that space, wild animals, they're actually more like domesticated animals, <laughs> which is even worse. We were wild and they domesticated us so that we can, we're able to do that, to do that job. And uh, because I believe that, I mean, the succession of the stories and how you relate them towards our evolution and to our jump from hunter-gatherer to a full-on functioning society uh, is that we were wild and we became domesticated. We actually started living inside cities and we, we, we built them and we've, we worked in the, in the agriculture and we've, we've done all that. So it's, it's a really good representation. It is domesticated. So basically that space, uh, which has been mentioned that it's, it had rivers and it had greenery and it has so many beautiful things. It also had those two very important trees uh, that were an issue, basically. They were, they were resources to the gods, but they were supposed to be untouched by man. We are nowhere to go. We are to go nowhere near them. We are not allowed. It's part of the rules of working there. And again, if, if you want to paint the picture of, of an animal that is trained not to go inside the house, for example, right? Like you stay out. If you go in, you're going to be punished. Same thing. And basically even, uh, I mean, we will get to it in uh, later, uh, but in the uh, Gilgamesh mentioned the garden of the gods, it says that it has bushes and it has, uh, it even had um, a precious stone. The lapis lazuli was, was, was mentioned as well in the garden and so on and so on. And yeah, it's, it's basically a, a representation of, of a plane, a space that was governed by gods and we had limited access to it. And once there was an intervention from one of the gods, we realized where we were and obviously we wanted more of this and that's when th all things, you know, hell broke loose, basically, and we were cast out of the garden. So from a spiritual or religious background, it's, uh, they, it's uh, believed that we were in heaven and we came down to earth because we, we disobeyed God's command and all that. But from a literal and Sumerian background, it's actually an actual space that we were no longer allowed to visit. It's as simple as that. And that's when, like I said, the 
the problems became between NK and Enlil. Uh, yeah, that's that's really interesting. So, like taking it from a literal standpoint, um, I, I I was thinking maybe the Garden of Eden and the fruit itself is more of a theory of us actually being able to identify plants or being told what qualities of medicinal plants have. Because for me, it's really fascinating how many medicinal plants are out there that have all these different attributes to the chemical balance within our bodies. And so, but what we would never, I mean, like through hundreds of thousands of years of trial and error, we would find out what these things do, you know, people dying, overdosing, all, all these things, but with certain specific information to know what did what. So my question to you, do you think that the apple was in fact an apple of knowledge or do you think maybe it may have been a psilocybin mushroom? Because when you this mushroom, it it gives you this really connective, grounding feeling and eye opening awareness to your surroundings. Uh, that's a very very interesting question. And um, to even when you when you called it, do you think it's the apple? Uh, this has also come to my attention very recently. Is that none of the religions actually name the fruit as an apple? I don't know when it started being called an apple. If you look at all the scripture, it's called the fruit. That's it, the fruit. It, even in, in, in different languages, it's called the fruit of the tree. It is never mentioned that it's, it's an apple. So that's a very interesting approach as to why we went into the direction of that it's an apple tree and that's an apple in itself. Because there is no indication from any source that it's an apple. So it's definitely not an apple. <laughs> that is <laughs> one to kind of make sure of it's not an apple. But your uh, idea of it being a more of a psychedelic uh, fruit, uh, I, I really would subscribe to this idea. I really like it because there is, if we kind of move away from any mythology, any religion, anything like that, and we just focus on evolution, there is a theory that mankind became self-aware because of psychedelics that he ate at some point, they they consumed a a fruit or a mushroom or something, which has created in them a sort of like, you know, the self-awareness, like what what is happening? There is more to this world. There is, you know, different planes of existence. There is something more and all that. And the theory of when it it relates to evolution, this is what kick-started societies basically and kick-started the idea of religion an idea of spirituality of thinking that if there's a god or not and anything what makes us what we are today so it would be interesting to look at that fruit as a form of help you know it helped us see the world behind the world right like it, it unveiled certain things i think the only question is why is it mentioned that someone gave us that fruit, right? Did we discover it by accident, which means all the mythology is wrong, all the different ideas, or was it actually kickstarted by something, some being, someone telling you, how about you eat this, and then you let? Because realistically, even if we are, uh, are saying, let's say, we, we all believe that it was uh, a, a ancient astronaut, a ancient god, an alien, Enki, came and did something, right? 
The only thing he would be doing is actually giving you something to expand your mind. The DNA has already been altered. You are already born and bred and everything as a, as a, as a creature. There's nothing now if we, if we come to, for example, like, uh, let's say a sheep, I'm not going to change his DNA right now to make him expand, right? It's going to, I'm going to have to alter him over several generations so that I, I turn him into a certain evolutionary path. But for something to become faster and like right now, I want you to expand your brain right now. Okay. It would include a sort of psychedelic. So yes, I definitely believe that there is an aspect of that. Yeah. So when, when thinking about that, do you think maybe uh, from like ancient alien perspective, they would say that the serpent manipulated the DNA in a human to give them that knowledge uh, because we were just animals before. But from another perspective, do you think maybe that was no the addition of a, of the pineal gland to the human makeup, to the human being itself, that the pineal gland was added and that's where our awareness and our um, vision of reality stems from? You have to look at it from a place where it was never the intention of any ancient god or alien for mankind to possess the knowledge that we have. This was never going to be the case because even if you take it upon yourself right now, you wouldn't want another species on earth to become self-aware because they're going to fight you for power. That's the basics of things. Uh, if, uh, let's say dogs are not going to be okay with the way they are done, for example. like well, if I'm self-aware, that means I'm going to be in control. So it was never about that. The idea is that when the DNA was altered to create mankind, not to expand his mind. So, but because we have, if we're going to go full on uh, believing that from a place that, okay, our DNA was altered and it was mixed with the DNA of an, another species, an alien species, something different beings. Let's say we go from that theory and we push. You take something from that DNA. These beings are self-aware and they know a lot more than we do. And they have traveled across the universe and they have lived for thousands and thousands of years and they're aware of a lot of several things. So when you mix the DNA of that being with a homo sapien, you need to block the DNA, not expand it. So the DNA is blocked within us, even to an extent till now, that all the characteristics that we would have taken from the Anunnaki have been blocked on a genetic level. Now, what the pineal gland does, or when, the, when, the, when, when Enki got involved and he kind of gave the fruit and all that, was to kind of unlock what already has been blocked within the DNA. So he didn't give us at that moment something that we didn't already have, but it was blocked on a genetic level. And that's what the expansion of the mind that has happened and keeps happening, this is where it comes from. It's because we already have it within us. And then what we will do with it later. You know, it's uh, it's funny too, because through your mind, you can create chemical changes and genetic changes within your body. Through, yes. through pure meditation and pure oneness and being, which is absolutely fascinating. So it's like almost 
if the you know and it can be enhanced with mushrooms and psychedelics uh, it can be enhanced with that but since you can enact this almost godlike feature within yourself to genetically un- unlock and, and advance that's that's great that's I don't know where I was going with that, but that's. <laughs> yeah, that's but so this, cool. uh, I know where you're going with this because that's the amazing part, but that's what's being censored, right? Everything yes. we've been told is that you are powerless. You cannot do anything. You're going to die very soon. You are sick. You have a weak body. You have a weak mind. There is no pl- other planes of existence. There is no astral. There is no ether. There is nothing. There's just this. You're going to come here and you're going to die, and that's it. Or. Maximum, if they're going to go any spiritual level, is you are being judged and you're going to go to hell. And in Christianity, you are born with the original sin because you are a sinner. And all these religions do is destroy the power of man. That's all they do in any aspect, which is also political, by the way, because the way we look at religious figures is the way we look at political figures. It's the same. It's he knows more. I'm going to come to him because he cares about my well-being, whether it was my well-being as a, as a citizen, if it was political, or my well-being as a spiritual person, if I'm looking at a religious figure. But time and time again, we have seen how these religious figures take advantage of their position. They, 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 they are in powerful places that they can manipulate entire populations and societies just so that they gain more power and more political compass like that. And even when, when you look at, for example, the, the Middle East region and how much this piece of land, which supposedly had, had to be the, the most peaceful land, right? Like if we're going to talk, this is the birthplace of the Abrahamic religion. This is where gods have walked here. This is where Jesus was. This is where all of this. And since Five to 6,000 years ago with uh, the birth of Judaism and then everything that followed when we talk about one God, the idea of a, a, a one God and then everything started with Judaism and not before it. This land has been at war since then till now and it's going to keep going because it's all about this division of people, this, you know, um, what's the saying, uh, divide and, and conquer, right? This is This is what it's based on. It's religious, it's political, it's all that. And like you said, it's about making mankind feel less powerful than they actually are. Like you saying, look how strong I am, look how amazing this could be. No one wants you to do that because if you do that, then you're going to question more things and you're going to question your figures of authority and you're going to question your religious background. And then this doesn't align with the control that they want. I mean, Very yeah, well especially said. too. Also, like, and if you, if yeah, you think, Sergio, <laughs> you're awesome. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no, it's just like that's that's what I was saying earlier. That knowledge is the 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 only weapon in this case, right? Like, like the more people just get to know more things and read and question everything. That's the only way to fight all this. And to an extent, I also do believe that we are being helped. I mean, I think this conversation went a bit sideways, but if you don't mind, that we are being helped by different entities as well. And 
to to come out from this uh, what uh, what is called this uh, draconian mind control thought control world that we are in right now because all the stuff that we have we have tried to read about and we have heard from 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 people talking about you know like alien abductions studies people appearing to them angels uh, any sort of figures that have come to to shift basically mankind's path and to help like there's there's a lot of help on the way you know like i i truly truly believe that if i subscribe completely to the idea that my genetics were manipulated that my dna is blocked and you brought up the 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 gland right which is between the the, the two eyes it's located it's the third eye and when you when we talk about that right and you want to talk about about it being the third eye which opens up and then you can see the words behind the word that's what all control and abrahamic religions are against right like if you mention a third eye you're satan you're the devil you are worshiping the, the worst of the worst and when you think about like what am i really doing wrong if i want to expand my mind and understand the word and then understand that we are all part of this world and we're all as one and we all of this what is exactly so evil in what i'm saying but no it's like block complete block towards anything that that symbolizes the expansion of the mind and the the gland itself uh, i don't know if you had a question about it before or uh, so uh, i i've made this post about it uh, on my instagram page and so many people ask me like how did we never notice this what does this mean and all that and the pineal gland is actually a, uh, represented by the the pine cone the pine cone itself and if you look at ancient civilizations and the carvings of those civilizations you will find the pine cone in almost all of them it's mind blowing even the anunnaki when you look at them holding stuff they are holding a pine cone and kind of like passing it on to someone which is a representation of knowledge of that mind expansion you see it in different civilizations including in christianity by the way there's a pine cone statue in the vatican in the middle of of st peter's square in the vatican there's a pine cone even the pope with his on his staff under the cross there's a pine cone as well you see it in in ancient um, latin american societies that they've used it as well even in india and hindu religion it's also used that is that representation of the gland that has been blocked basically with, within us and once the eye is open there is no turning back right like that it's 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 a path that that we have taken and we've you reach a place where you've kind of you know certain truth and you cannot go back to accepting anything else after before after that you can't go back to that because once the eye is open it cannot close anymore all right so as of right now i'm actually drinking pine catkin tea oh yeah um because pine pollen, we did a segment on it in our last show, has it's one of the most compact superfoods. And it has 
the ability to incredibly increase your testosterone and your libido. And when you look back, like you were saying, to the ancient pine that goes to the earliest scripture of Anunnaki and ancient Egypt and everywhere, it's all everywhere. When I started drinking this stuff because I have a pine tree out in my yard, I'm telling oh, wow. you, like, I I have been my energy levels have been crazy. I've been having such like just psychedelic life experiences by existing because I've been drinking pine pollen for the past like two weeks now. And I really want to highly recommend like ordering some or getting any. This is like real like tree magic, like medicinal medicinal plant medicine that is i mean it's so it's dated all the way back it's yeah how how have we known about the magic of the trees for so long it is it's absolutely mind-blowing to me i love plant medicine and that connection is crazy it's crazy right that that's amazing i mean like uh, i'm definitely and i'm gonna get myself some pine pollen i don't know how i'm gonna find it here in my country (laughs) where i am but i'm definitely gonna jump on board because like you said it's it's uh, it's it's been there through all times, right? Like since the early early times, and you can sense in the especially in the world that we're living in today how this has been suppressed, right? Like how much there's a war on organic and healthy food, something like this. Like our kids don't get um, you know ads on TV about drinking pine pollen, right? Like they don't get uh, about how healthy fruits that come from the ground should help you. No, they get about chocolate and, and uh, processed food and all this, this unbelievable crap that it's like, it just, it's mind blowing that you can feel there's a suppression of, of, of this stuff. Right. And like, you know how, uh, like the entire food industry of the world is owned by 10 companies, right? 10. Okay. Like Coca-Cola and PepsiCo and like these, these 10 companies, imagine how much control there is. It's terrifying. It's really terrifying when you start seeing these things it, from one side, the food, the other side is the media and how no one talks about healthy food. No one talks about, about what this could bring to mankind. And it's like, they want you sick. They want you suppressed. They want you like a sheep without not questioning anything. The, the, the amount of poison the amount of poison that we are being uh, exposed to. And it's not because, oh, it's cheaper to produce. It's because, no, 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 no. I, I don't buy into that that idea that uh, it's only because uh, processed food is cheaper. No, it costs a lot of money. It costs a lot of, uh, uh, there's so much labor. There's so many people. No, the idea is that there is a, a complete suppression of what can help you expand yourself of your third eye, of your penal gland, of everything that has been already is within us, but they don't want you to unlock, basically. And you're ridiculed for it. You're uh, you're made to look, especially when it comes to any conspiracy theory or anything out there, you're like, oh, you're the crazy guy. You wear, go wear a tinfoil hat, go do all this, where in fact... You, you can see it in yourself, right? Like when you change your diet, you can see the, the, the change within you. I, I stopped eating junk food about two or three years ago. I was completely an addict to that. And every day, every day I would get McDonald's and Burger King and all that crap. And 
I had to stop, you know, thank God my, my, my body rejected uh, any sort of weight and bread and stuff like that. I, I became very sick because of it. So I had to stop everything. And once I stopped, I, I didn't even want it. Any, like, I'm not even craving it anymore. Like, I'm actually addicted to crap that, that runs in my blood, right? And once it leaves you, you feel more energetic. You feel healthier. You feel, like, calmer to even to, to start thinking about other stuff, right? And that's what, what, what you're talking about. Like, two weeks for, for with you uh, on this diet and look, look at the difference. It's it's amazing. Um, it, all right, I have a kind of an offbeaten question that I thought about a little bit ago, but I'm gonna just ask it anyway. Um, so, do you think the people that run these corporations, or as some people call them, the elitist, or whoever runs the world, mm-hmm. because it seems as if they are all within a council of sorts, do you think they're trying to expand and build up civilization to fight the gods? Like they're trying to get to space. Ooh. What's our addiction with going to space? Are they trying to like battle with with the you know the gods? Maybe. I mean, look. If you want to go into a deeper uh, theories and conspiracy, there's too many layers to that about the <laughs> the one percent of the one percent, right? Or even the one percent of that, or, or whoever's running the show, the real show. Um, if you if you want to go all out with conspiracy, okay, so just give me the floor to go Always. all out here. Uh, the idea that aliens exist, okay, we always tend to think also there's one type of alien. So it's the greys, for example, like the abduction and all that. So if we're going to think aliens, we think that. But a lot of other people have come out to who have experienced different either psychedelic experiences or they claim that they have been, you know, kidnapped or uh, all that and experimented on. They talk about different types of races that are on earth that have come. So it's like throughout the history of earth, even before mankind, there have always been visitors to earth. They come and they leave. And earth in itself is a very special planet. So earth is a lot more lush than other planets in the galaxy. The way it is, the way it's the greenery, the amount, the abundance of life, the way things grow on Earth, as far as other, you know, civilizations are concerned, Earth is really special, and it's a, it's a, it's a place like it's a, it's a place for uh, even astral travel, and several things can happen on Earth that cannot happen on on other planets. With that in mind. Today, the world we live in today is not the, the world of the Anunnaki. It's not the word of Enlil and Enki and Anu and all these. These these have these were beings that were on Earth but have basically left Earth. This has happened such a long time ago that their influence is on Earth, but it's no longer as it was before. They're no longer present here. And the theory goes is uh, the theory says that different uh, um, species are on Earth right now, including one that are called the Palladians. I don't know if, how much you know about Palladians. And uh, the Draconians, basically, which are referred to as the shapeshifters and the lizards and all that stuff. So anytime someone like even jokes or talks seriously about this, they're talking about that way. So they're not talking about the Anunnaki. The Anunnaki, they look very human, like they are uh, more, more like us because we are made in their image, 
which is another scripture, by the way, line, that we are, have been made in the image of God. This is literally, we have been made from, from the Anunnaki. You know, so that also another dot to connect. But in terms of the suppression uh, uh, and, and all that, there is more benefits for another species to suppress this information than, than the Anunnaki had. Because at the end of the day, the Anunnaki left information behind. There were tablets. There are monuments built. There are a lot of evidence, tangible evidence, of the Anunnaki's existence on Earth, right? Whether we want to believe that uh, they're real or not is beside the point. But they, as a species, they have, uh, they have left landmarks behind them. They have left text. Yes. So do you think that the Anunnaki were always on Earth? No, 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 no. The Anunnaki came and there were other beings on Earth at the time. There were other beings before and there were other beings after them. The Anunnaki are just one of many civilizations that have reached Earth. But what the Anunnaki did, which basically was not well received by the council <laughs> of, the Federa- of the Galactic Federation or whatever, is that they have actually intervened in the, in the evolution of a species on Earth, which is mankind. That's what sets them um, apart from other civilizations that have come. So the Anunnaki stand to uh, as, as separate because they, at some point, they decided to to do something on Earth and not just to mine the resources or to uh, get to different electromagnetic locations or to help them, you know, ascend and stuff like that. So I know this is a bit of an off-topic question, but since you mentioned the Galactic Federation and you live in that cradle of civilization part of the world, what did the release of, I, I don't remember uh, the guy's name, but the one that said... The Israel in, uh, the, from Israel, right? The, prime, the minister. Yes. The ex-minister. Yes. Yeah. Yes. yes. So what did that... What does that do or what did that do to the thinking of the people in that area? Because I'm guessing there's a lot, a lot of Judaic religions there. So what does inputting that idea of an alien galactic federation do to the mindset of all the people there? See, um, not as much as you would think or hope, to be honest, because... We, over centuries of, of programming in our brain, we have become so desynthesized to the idea of aliens that even when there are now actual people talking about it, you still go, he's crazy. He's just crying for attention. I don't think it's real. It's, there has been this sort of like constant programming. And, and now what you can see is happening is that slowly, slowly we are being reprogrammed to accept this idea more. So last year, the, the Pentagon released UFO footage. This has never happened in history, right? They released like, look, we don't know what these are, but they were definitely uh, something off about them. Yeah. And recently they also kind of like released other footage as well related to this. And now you have the Israeli minister or ex-minister talking about it. So what I feel is happening is that there is a reprogramming of mankind to accepting this idea, but it's going to be so slow 
because they've spent decades and centuries telling us, no, no, nothing. There's nothing. There's nothing that everyone's like, okay, fine. There's nothing. And, you know, I'm not going to believe in it anymore. So now it's like slowly spoon feeding. There might be something. There might be something like that. But it won't have the reaction that we think it will have. People are not just going to go up one day and say, look what he said. There's definitely aliens. No, we, we are so far desynthesized to that idea that it's going to take decades and a generation of people to accept this, this idea. What uh, movies have done and media have done over the many years that's been happening, even George Orwell's, you know, War of the Worlds radio thing that he did, is it's desensitization. It's also predictive programming. So they basically instill a way for us to react to these things by putting it in media for, you know, plenty and plenty of years. And they do that with a lot of stuff. The psychology... um has been mastered um, over years. Mind control has been mastered over years and um, propaganda has been mastered over years. And so this long ploy of basically seeping out, they it, it's mind-blowing. So my, my take on it is that there is, there's a bigger um, agenda at play with the leaking of it. I think that there okay. there is a bigger, big, you know, they... They, they must have a reason because they, they only would decide to do it at this point and also put it in a COVID release uh, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. stimulus bill, right? <laughs> exactly. Like they would put it in that. It's, it's a joke because they want to they, – they think of us as these sheep that they have domesticated and, and – um, you know, it, it's just really, really interesting. I don't know. Maybe we should divert more back onto the, the, the Sumerian style of things because we're going real deep <laughs> with it, boys. That's you feel true. me? That's true. It's true. It's just uh, even just to for what you mentioned about it being released in 2020, which is like the most eventful year uh, maybe in mankind, <laughs> right? Yeah. And they just like threw it out there. Just like, oh, by the way, there's a UFO video right there. Okay, And everyone's like... Yeah, sure, whatever. You know, I've dealt with so many things right now. I don't have time to deal with that. So I agree. It's definitely, definitely a, a um, timed perfectly when it's released and when, yeah. I would, I would definitely love to get you back on the show in the future and we can work through this a little bit more. But sure. let's, let's kind of stay on point, though, and get into some more uh, Sumerian Anunnaki stuff. Uh, cause we're, we got about 40 minutes left or so. Uh, so let's get into the epic of Gilgamesh. Yeah, I still got to do work today. And what we were talking about earlier, uh, was the consciousness of, of humans and sort of like, did we start with that consciousness or did we grow that consciousness? And, and where was that line drawn? And in, in the epic of Gilgamesh, it talks about Enkidu, who was this wild man creature. And this hunter had came out and seen him in the wild uh, a few different times in the water. And he was eating with the animals and he was behaving just like an animal, but he looked human-like. Um, and then uh, the hunter came to Gilgamesh and said, hey, I've seen this uh, animal out in the wild that's big and strong uh powerful like a like a bull you know what should i do with this animal or how do i how do i control this animal and uh gilgamesh said to him 
take Shamat with you out to the wilderness and have Shamat offer her body up to Enkidu. So then that happens. And I'm gonna read I'm gonna read from the Miss Mesopotamia what happened. And it says, uh so this is the hunter taking Shamat out into the wilderness. The hunter went, he led forth the harlot Shamat with him, and they took the road. They made the journey. In three days they reached the appointed place. Hunter and Harlot sat down in their hiding place for one day, then a second. They sat at the watering place. The cattle arrived at the watering place. They drank. The wild beast arrived at the water. They satisfied their need. And he, Enkidu, whose origin is the mountain, who eats vegetation with gazelles, drinks at the watering place with cattle, satisfied his need for water with wild beasts. Shamat looked at the primitive man, the murderous youth from the depths of the open country. Here he is, Shamat. Bear your bosom, open your legs, and let him take in your attractions. Do not pull away, take wind of him. He will see you and come close to you. Spread open your garments and let him upon you. Do for him the primitive man as women do. Then his cattle, who have grown up in open country with him, will become alien to him. His lovemaking he will lavish upon you. Shamat loosened her undergarments, opened her legs, and he took in her attractions. She did not pull away. She took wind of him, spread open her garments, and he lay upon her. She did for him, the primitive man, as women do. His lovemaking he lavished upon her. For six days and seven nights, Enkidu was aroused and poured himself into Shamat. When he was sated with her charms, he set his face towards the open country of his cattle. The gazelles saw Enkidu and scattered. The cattle of open country kept away from his body, for Enkidu had stripped his body it was too clean. His legs, which used to keep pace with the cattle, were at a standstill. Enkidu had been diminished. He could not run as before, yet he had acquired judgment, had become wiser. He turned back. He sat at the harlot's feet. The harlot was looking at his expression, and he listened attentively to what the harlot said. The harlot spoke to him. Enkidu, you have become profound, Enkidu. You have become like a god. Why should you roam open country with wild beasts? Come, let me take you into Urak and the sheepfold, to the pure house, the dwelling of Anu and Ishtar, where Gilgamesh is perfect in strength and is like a wild bull, more powerful than any of the people. She spoke to him, and her speech was acceptable. Knowing his own mind, he would seek for a friend. Enkidu spoke to her, to the harlot. Come, Shamat, invite me to the pure house, the holy dwelling of Anu and Ishtar, where Gilgamesh is perfect in strength, and is like a wild bull, more powerful than any of the people. Let me challenge him, and I, in Urak, I shall be the strongest. I shall go in and alter destiny. So that that's the beginning of what happens in the epic of Gilgamesh and how they get this guy Enkidu to come and wrestle basically with Gilgamesh to keep Gilgamesh at bay. Cause what Gilgamesh is doing is he is a king 
But before these girls are getting married and sent off, he's going in and sleeping with them before they're getting married to make them unpure and unclean. And the whole area has a problem with this, but what can they do because he is the king? So they go and they find this wild beast that can match Gilgamesh in strength. And they bring the wild beast Enkidu into the city. And then this is where the epic kind of starts taking off. And Gilgamesh and uh, Enkidu wrestle in the city for days upon days. And then they end up becoming friends and they go on this journey together. It, can you uh, can you find in that spot where they go to the pine forest? I think like right after where they wrestle and they become friends, they go to like a secret pine forest. Or uh, they go to the cedar woods. Oh, cedars! Nice. Yeah, they're cedars. And most people cedars, think that as Lebanon, uh, but as Lebanon. <laughs> uh, Sergio said earlier too, it's different in different uh, languages. It's different places. So maybe Sergio can elaborate that on that a little bit. It's the it's basically the same like uh, like you said that uh, in terms of understanding where those locations were because even the in Lebanon the cedars are called the cedars of God. That's what they refer to uh, because that type of cedar is nowhere else other than than in in Lebanon, <clears throat> nowhere else on earth. And uh, there's always these these walks, um, these places that these gods roamed uh, that refer to either Syria, Lebanon, Turkey, Jordan, all of that. Like, um, so yeah, so you can't really know, but I mean, considering that the cedars that are there in Lebanon are unique to the region, uh, especially in the Middle East, Maybe maybe it's connected to that land as well. Uh, there's definitely definitely something in Lebanon uh, when it comes to to that religion in Bahrain here where I am now, which is I don't know if you know it, but it's like a small island on the uh, Persian Gulf uh, next to Saudi. There's a temple for Enki, for example, which I discovered two months ago. An actual temple of Enki. Like I was like. Oh my God! You know, so this whole land, uh, even even there's a a tree uh, in the desert in Bahrain, a tree that uh, if you wanna search for it later, it's called it's called the tree of life, and it's a tree that is literally alone in a desert in a in a desert as far as your eyes can see, all sand. There's a tree that that came out, no one knows how or why, and at some point it was believed to be the tree of of Eden, basically like that much. So, yeah. Do you have pictures of that tree? Uh, I mean, it's it's. I've been there. I've been there. I I went personally to it. It's it's insane. Yeah, did <laughs> it's you, literally did you in take the middle of, pictures of, of it? nowhere. I want. Uh, yeah, but it's. Uh, I mean, like several uh, years ago on my older phone, not <laughs> not the one I have now. Okay, because I was like, oh, let's you go. Should let's do it. Send trip. us a couple of those pictures, and yeah. we can post them on our Instagram. To show that tree, that's that's awesome. That yes, it's so great, man. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. There, there's definitely something in in the in the land, uh, in the entire land here that once talked about, in like you're saying, like either whether it's from the Garden of Eden or what the Cedar Forest, like now between Enkidu and Gilgamesh and all that. There, uh, it's it's at the minimum, it's inspired by the land that that here that's here. 
I, I wouldn't be surprised if um, there's not a ley line or an electromagnetic field of sorts that runs through that area. Um, like like all other sacred sites, I, I I'll look into it later and I'll let you guys know. I'll check my check my sources. In uh, my- in, um, in Lebanon, there is uh, I don't know if you're familiar. It's uh, called Balbek. Balbek. Uh, it's uh, it's yeah. an ancient, supposedly a Romanian, um, uh, basically land uh, full on pantheon uh, for several gods that were there. But recent studies have shown that. It seems that when the Romans came and saw the land, they saw temples and then they built on them and then they took the credit for them because it feels like there's a, there's a difference in the way uh, stones are being stacked and everything. And I haven't been to Lebanon in several years, but I am planning to go there and actually, I don't know, try to meditate and go to Baalbek and I want to... I want to experience something there. I want to see what kind of energy I can I can experience, what kind of vibration comes from the land there. Uh, because um, I've heard so many things about it, including an ancient uh, race of giants that used to live there as well, uh, called the Mu. The Nephilim, exactly. Uh, I mean, known as different names, but they are the Nephilim. Uh, Lebanon is a four-hour flight from here, basically. So uh, it's not so bad. Uh, but yeah, there's definitely um, a lot of evidence that the Nephilim built a lot of ancient sites in the region as well. And they are also mentioned in the Bible and in um, uh, in the Quran as well. There's a lot of mention of giants at the time. Including, by the way, like the story of um, David and Goliath, because David is a and and at the time it was believed that it's, so you can connect more dots, right? So David is Jewish, right? So Judaism, so Yahweh, so Enlil, and who was he fighting? He was fighting Goliath, which is a Nephilim. It's a it's a it's a giant, and at the time it was believed that the Anunnaki had a lot of problems with the, with the, with the giants. So there's there's this also like kind of war which have you know made its way into the Bible between the Anunnaki and what they want and what Enlil want versus the race of the giants that inhabit Earth basically because they're made to look bad. That is crazy. So do you, oh no, I'm not even going to go into Sasquatch or we should we should completely <laughs> come back to like how like the story and the creation of the giants. Like we have to go into that. Um, but oh man, what was I going? Oh, I was going to say so. Like Baalbek, it's 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 kind of Athenian style architecture, right? Like, yes, it looked like it could be Roman, but the Roman bricks were flat and they had like a very specific style of building. So it's different than that. Uh, not only that, because in, at um, so it, at, at Baalbek you have the the, the temple, mm-hmm. right? You have whatever is left of the temple that was original there. There's two: one for a god called the Bacchus, and another god I don't remember the name. So there were two temples, and there was like a lot of places, yani, to walk and uh, people praying and you know doing all the celebration. That's not the the the, the part which is weird. That is built by the Romans or the Greeks or whatever. It's not an issue. What's issue is what is it built on? So what is it built on is a three or four 
giant stones that when you see them in person, because I have seen them in person, okay, you're literally like like an ant next to them. And it's all one slab of stone, one, one piece of stone. So they're not even connected together. And they were put in a play in a way where it's like it, it's a platform. Okay, so if you look at it from far without looking at the temple, you see like this normal land, and then this is raised. It raises the land on on, a, on this high platform, which is believed that when the Romans came, they found this specific land, and they were like, "This looks like a very perfect place to build a temple, right?" Because even not only in the type of architecture, but even the stones that are used. So the stones that are used to build the temple are, you know, they're magnificent on its own, and that is architecture. It's amazing on its own. However, the stones that are below it are cut in a way, like they're, they're joined together in a way where you can't even pass a piece of string between them. So they're joined in a way that have been cut with with tools that are impossible to 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 to, to have existed at the time. If that's the case, right? So that that age and the tools that they used, they can't cut. And each each stone itself is around fifty to one hundred ton in in weight. So in terms of moving them, they don't know how they move them. In terms of how they put them next to each other and they cut and they joint them together is also a very very mysterious. So that's why the theory ha- comes that. They came as a civilization, like the Romans came and they found this sacred land and they decided to build a temple on top of it, which is now mostly destroyed and nothing is left from it. But the stones are still there. Jupiter. Wow. Yes. That is the god, the other god. You're right. It's Jupiter and Bacchus. Yes. Okay. Um, I think we got a little off track there uh, with the with the text from the myths of Mesopotamia about Gilgamesh and being the primordial man becoming a human by having sexual intercourse with a woman took him out of nature and even the animals wouldn't go close to him anymore. Uh, Was it maybe the smell or something or because they knew that he was no longer one of them because he had sex with a human uh, what are you guys' interpretations of of that story of how we became man? Well, uh, I, I I'm curious as to so Gilgamesh was uh, king of whatever town is scripted there. I'm not sure, but what are the people in that town? Are they gods as well? So I know that Inkadu had to be created because Gilgamesh was causing too much ruckus. Right, he was beating up all the men. And then he was raping all the women. So he was a terrible king. And so uh, someone went to the gods and said to the gods, can you help us? Because Gilgamesh is getting out of control. And then then she goes and finds uh, Inkadu in the wild. But I'm, my question is, is what people were they humans, contemporary humans living amongst Gilgamesh? Or what was this man in the wild? And was it an actual like a, was it like an elk or something or was it a humanoid or was it a Sasquatch? Was it a Nephilim? You know? Um, yeah, that's kind of all I, I take from that. My, I'm curious because now I'm obsessed with giants. So I just looked up the stones of ba- Baobach and I'm like, definitely <laughs> <Yeah>. like giants. <laughs> but that's what I got on that. So, so does it, 
And based on what uh, what Roman was asking, is there any indication to what sort of people were living within the city? Are they a representation of of gods, or they're just humans, basically? Well, from from what I've researched, it seems like the Anunnaki are separate from the people that actually live in the city. Uh, it seems like the Anunnaki are these gods, and the people there are just natives to that land that they came and and kind of enslaved in a way to, but they didn't just enslave them. They also taught them about the planet and sciences and astronomy. They gave them a lot of tools to be able to survive also, but they also used them to work, to do work for them. Uh, uh, almost like a servitude, which is what you see kind of in these religion is like a servitude towards God aspect. So, um, and as far as Enkidu goes, it seems like he's different from the normal people. He's not, he's not part of them. He's wild. He lives in the wild. He lives in nature. And he's like the, that whole story is because he has sex with a human woman, he's no longer even considered to be a nature being to the animals. The animals end up rejecting him, and he has no other way but to live as a human in the city. So it, it has that very wow. humanity aspect to it. And it's, uh, it's very interesting because normally you think of knowledge being passed down from uh, – wisdom or from the fruit of life or the fruit of knowledge but in this aspect it's being passed down because he's he's becoming human because he's now intermingling with humans i guess you could say so it has a very different connotation to it so i was just i just thought it was interesting and would wanted to share that Makes sense. Makes sense because even when it came to the the creation, the myth of creation, the the problem was also related to sexual intercourse, if you want, or reproduction. So there is an aspect to that that seems to be a, a constant issue for for the gods. You know, anything related, which is also seen now, by the way, in Abrahamic religions and, you know, the look on sex and, you know, premarital sex and all that stuff. So there seems to be a pattern when it comes to what man does when it relates to his sexuality and whether it's it's connected to him expand, like literally just becoming more of, there's more of him through sex or whether he's experiencing something else can't really put my finger on it, but I think what you mentioned is is interesting that it's when he mingled sexually with something else that he, then he was rejected from nature and he was no longer seen as a wild animal and he was more inclined to, you know, become friends with Gilgamesh and, and go on this journey with him and mm-hmm. become more and more human, basically. But it is. It also does align with the idea that different Anunnaki gods have different agendas as well. So it's not black and white. It's not Enki versus Enlil, right and wrong. It's not like that. They have 
they they view things differently. They don't see it like like yeah, wrong or right or on this path or that path. Yeah, right. And in nature too, uh, people think of like good and evil, but in nature, a shark eats another fish. That's murder. But that shark is eating that other fish to survive. Even us as humans, we kill other animals to eat them, to consume them. And it's it's murder, but we don't view it in that way because we're we're gaining from it uh, nutrients and, and whatnot to sustain life. So in the same way, the gods have the same aspect to humans is that they do things for the benefit of themselves, not necessarily for the benefit of the humans that they rule over. Yes, completely. And it's like, uh, uh, like I said before, that even Enki, who we should be, you know, thankful for and all that, he didn't do it from a place of, I love humans, so I want them to expand. He did it from a place that this is a, an experiment. I want to see where it goes how far can I take this? You know, so there is no affection towards things. And yeah, that's that is, that itself is really interesting because we want to praise so much, um, you know, to like yes. the creator, the God. And then exactly. but there's potential that it was actually made out of uh, almost remorse or, or something. Um, but I also wanted to bring back real quick before we hop out of the Gilgamesh um so I was saying an Enkidu uh, uh, sleeping with the god. She was an Anunnaki god, right? Woman, woman, Anunnaki god. That could almost be an interpretation of like a genetic morphing of sorts or a genetic change in that. You know, that could be the another intermingling of the genetic crossings of a humanoid and a god of sorts. If that makes yeah, sense. Uh, I, I, I agree with this because you, you, yes, yeah, yes, yes, exactly. And, and, and you have to, the words that we read, you have to understand who wrote them and what kind of background they had, what kind of information they had. Someone in that time won't understand a DNA, you know, or like a, a, a genetic coding and what we can block and what we can, uh, you know, mix together between the Anunnaki and the Homo sapiens. And we can't do that. So so he would relate it, like I said, to the closest thing he knows, which is, oh, so they they had sex together. They, that's what it means, right? They, they, they had an offspring, for example, in another situation. Oh, that means they had sex. This is, it's, it's a very literal explanation to very advanced ideas that at the time people did not know, did not have the words to use. So to Agreed. finish out this whole Gilgamesh uh, topic right here, at the very end, he gets to confront God, correct? Yeah. And at that point, what does, what does God show or tell to, to Gilgamesh? Uh, what, what does it say? Uh, he he tells them about the flood and how uh, humanity um, survived the flood and whatnot. But yeah, uh, exactly, exactly. Which is basically it, it. It comes back to this same story, which is told over and over of this flood of what what humanity endured and survived and how 
through interference or through other stuff, we were able to, you know, maintain uh, our uh, our race or or anything like that. And I think the what we can what we take from that in terms of like the epic of Gilgamesh and the other stories as well and all is this constant retelling of the same story, which is retold in so many different civilizations at the time, civilizations that did not have the means to communicate with each other, right? So they were separated by so much space or even separated by time, thousands of years of uh, in, in difference in, in the... Um, in, in the era that they, you know, reigned over, and yet they still go over that same story. And this, to me, highlights and pinpoints the importance of, of, of returning to the source, of returning to the story of Gilgamesh and the story of the Anunnaki and the birthplace of all of these stuff, because there is some truth in them, that we are now, you know, trying to 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 reveal to ourselves, and there is some, like, there's always this this fight between the, the science and the, the and history. And science will tell you never in the history of Earth has there been a flood. There is no evidence that a flood existed, for example, and yet you see it being told in so many different mythologies in so many different ways that there has to be a common ground to all of this, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's that's basically, to me, that's the connecting them is is the is the most important. Even, um, uh, like Ingido and Roman mentioned, is uh, like it could be a, a, a giant or Sasquatch or something like that, yeah. something that has reappeared later, right? Like uh, in, in, in different times and in modern times, and all that. And there has to be some truth to it. There, there is some sort of background, concrete background to all of this, all these stories that we're just kind of like putting together, as you would say. Yeah. Can you, can you get into more of the humanity aspects of the gods in, in that flood tale, in the tale of like how Enki and or is it Enki that saved? Um... Yeah, basically, yeah, yeah. Basically, uh, at the uh, when the decision was made in the pantheon of the gods of the Anunnaki, when they decided to go ahead with the flood, a lot of uh, different uh, gods and goddesses were against it, including uh, the one who birthed mankind. Basically, the one who. Um, hosted the DNA within herself because uh, there are texts about her uh, lamenting and and crying over what's going to happen to mankind. So it was at that time when, when Enki again kind of like went in his own way and spoke to the figure that, that has many different names in different scriptures and different which let's say we call him Noah, for example, because he's, it's the most popular name. And he told him that I am going to talk to you, but it will be through a dream. So when you go to bed tonight, that's when I'm going to talk to you, 
which is a highlight to, to different ways of communication, by the way, when it comes to Anunnaki and, and stuff like that. And he, told, he revealed to him that a flood is coming and it's going to wipe out mankind and all life on earth, basically. And he gave him the, in that dream, he gave him the tools to, to, to escape it and to survive it. And there's a very interesting saying, which was, uh, I, I felt like it was literally the same sentence between the, the mythology uh, of the Anunnaki and the Noah uh, book. Uh, when he goes to his own people and tells them, my God uh, fell out of sort with your God. He actually mentions it even in the Bible. He says, my God, the one who came to me in my dream, is no longer associating himself with your gods. And that's why he told me what to do. And the story as it goes is that the ark was built, the animals were brought on, uh, on board, and for this is the difference is the amount of time it took. So the Anunnaki talk about seven days and seven nights of flood, where the, um, the Bible talks about 40 days of, of the flood, uh, upon which after that, that group of people only survived it. And um, this is why we are still alive, basically, as part of the story. And uh, the interesting part in, in both of them is how, like, if you want to take it from a scientific point of view, and let's talk more advanced, the ark itself didn't, doesn't have to be an actual boat. It doesn't have to be a, uh, uh, with the animals coming on board, you don't even have to think about it from a place where actual animals walked on the plank and made their way. They could be a genetic uh, storage of their DNA so that there is a repopulation of Earth after the flood, right? So if you look at it from, you know how right now in Siberia, there is this, um, this building which is um, like explosion proof and, and can survive everything. And in it, they have put right now, they put like seeds of, of fruits and animals and, and uh, like DNA records and stuff like that, right? Take that information and, and how this was accomplished and apply it to the mythology of the Anunnaki. If we are believing that they were able to code DNA and change the genetics, then they are also capable of storing DNA data and then using that for, for later. So it, it didn't even need to be a boat. It, it's, a, it's referred to even as an ark, right? So... It could be just a specific type of building that was given or, or taught how to build and you bring in this stuff with you. But again and again, the symbolism is that we don't really understand how they viewed things back then and what it meant to them to bring all animals on board. You, you, got, you got what I mean? Yes, yes, for sure. Yeah, 100%. All right, well, unfortunately, guys, that's all the time that we have for this show. So, Sergio, tell them where they can find you at. Uh, well, uh, you can find me on all uh, podcast, uh, you know, uh, channels that there are. Uh, just search for Paradigm Shift with Sergio and you will find me. Uh, most This is most of the talk uh, I do. It's about the Anunnaki. It's about different stuff that are hidden from mankind, 
what we can do with this, how can we expand and all that. And I have my uh, Instagram page as well, which is uh, paradigm.shift.experience. So it's also about what I talk about in my podcast, plus other more visual stuff that I that I present there. So yeah, find me there. On your podcast, you you kind of go down a lot of uh, spiritual routes. Yes. I would say yes. You talk about like parallel dimensions and and a lot of other interesting topics. You do it briefly too. Only I think your longest episode is maybe forty five minutes. Uh, but you have a lot of episodes that are just 20 minutes or so. And, and you, you that, yeah. bring in like this deep topic and you talk about it in such a eloquent way and bring in so many different aspects in that short time. It gives people a lot of things to ponder about in their day. So if they have like a 20 minute car ride, you know, to work or whatever, if they just pop on and listen to one episode, their mind can wander for the rest of the day about what you're conveying to them because some of the topics on there are are pretty like you know eye opening or mind boggling. It's it's a good thing to rattle in your brain for the day. Yeah, your show is really fucking great, dude. I love it. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Actually, the old episodes were long, but then I decided to stop doing long episodes and cut them to fifteen minutes stops because what I want is to get an amount of information to people, but in the simplest way possible. Because sometimes some information can be so overwhelming that it drives people away, especially when you talk spirituality. Everyone goes like, I'd rather not. So what I try to do is simplify it in the best way possible in the shortest amount of time to just kind of get people to question something. My whole point of doing everything related to my podcast or my page is not to make people believe what I believe. Maybe everything I say is wrong. I just want people to question, to sit there and go, hmm, this is an interesting idea. Let me see where it goes. That's the whole point of of everything that I do, basically. Awesome. So, yeah, it's good that you guys like it. I'm I'm very happy (laughs) to hear that. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Sergio, for joining us today and being our first guest, too. That's that's great. I, I really liked it. I really like you guys. Uh, I um, I see this going, and I I want to be part of it as well. Like I I hope you have me again. And uh, oh yeah. yes. <laughs> yeah. All right. Also, uh, check us out on Instagram too. At, uh, rising under slash ft under slash ashes under slash pod. Uh, we do post pictures there, um, and if you want to hear new episodes, we we post that we're releasing a new episode there also so make sure you go follow us on instagram and you can also email us at rising at yahoo.com send us your comments uh send us emails send us your spiritual experiences uh we'll read them in our segments at the beginning of the shows uh so give us some feedback all right thank you guys for joining us have a good night thank you